0: Welcome to the ninth episode of All of the Above. We're recording on Wednesday, January 21st, 2015. My name is Sean Duran, and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Sam Batner.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: And uh, Brian Brush. Hey, everyone. This week, we are pumped to have a wonderful guest on the show, the single person behind Desk, the distraction-free writing app that was handpicked by Apple as one of the best apps of 2014, which is quite an accomplishment, Mr. John Saddington. Hey, guys, what's up? Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, I'm so happy that I didn't even wait for you to ask me. I'm I'm just this is school.
0: <laughs> just to get things a little bit started and uh, to get people acquainted with you and have us acquainted with you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, who John Saddington is and possibly what dusk is? Yeah,
2: sure. So I am an Asian male. I am that's a no, good start. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I am 32. I have been married 10 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, it's a decade, decade mark, a big deal. That's kind of my, one of my most significant accomplishments um, is staying married, happily married. I've got a eight and a four-year-old, uh, two, two girls, uh, Rowan and
0: Arden. Oh, those are awesome names.
2: Yeah, Rowan, Easter, and Arden Bell. But beyond that f- kind of family world, I uh, have been a software engineer for 17 years. If you do the math, it means I started working professionally at 15, and that would be true. I started a as an engineer for a Dow thirty Fortune fifty company actually when I was fifteen and um, wor- worked for a long time. I was it's funny. I was uh, earning money, you know, when, when most of my friends were you know out in the summer playing doing st- cool stuff with girls, and I was stuck in a cubicle and uh, just really loving life, I guess. But no, not really. Went to uh, Georgia Tech, <laughs> promptly failed out of their computer science program, and uh, probably. How do you? Uh... <laughs> no, I, I I failed out of their computer science program and uh, thought I was going to be a college dropout. I, I should have been a college dropout, but conned my way back in and somehow managed a bachelor of science of like the most liberal arts degree at, at Georgia Tech, and then uh, became an engineer. I continued to become an engineer and kind of work up a corporate ladder. Became an executive in a Fortune 50 um, when I was 25. And then I left to, uh, and that, that, well, that was terrible. But then I left to do entrepreneurship full time, starting around 2007, 2008. Since then I've done a handful of start- startups, um, three bootstrap, three venture funded, I've had some exits, and um, I've had a hell of a time. So now I'm an angel investor, entrepreneur, and uh, continue to build software, um, just because I will never get old, it will never get old. So that's it, I have two master's degrees as well, one in education, um, so I stay really, really busy. Wow.
3: As somebody is working on their master's in education, that's uh, awesome to hear. I had no idea about that with you, but you also, I think have just made me realize that I have wasted, uh, potentially many years <laughs> of my <laughs> life at this point.
2: <laughs> I, I, well, I can't do anything about that, but <laughs> what we can tell our, our listeners is something that I think is, is really vital. Important is that. Uh, and one of my mentors, very early on in my life, said, um, "John, we're not getting much older," and we've all heard that a thousand times over. But I don't know why. For that one instant, it really struck chord, and I realized I really got a very quick, quick sense of my mortality. And ever since then, I said, if if I'm going to be doing anything, I got to go hard. I can't waste any time because I'm going to be dead really quick. So I've just tried to accelerate um, everything that I possibly can do to to have a very full and fulfilling and um, joyful life. So I run hard, um, but I really, really love what I get to do.
3: Yeah, no, and that's a great perspective on life, in my opinion. Especially if we think about the fact that if we are supposed to sleep the eight hours that is recommended. That is one third of our life. So you only have really two thirds when you're active and can do something. So being able to pick up the pace and run out and pursue your passions is incredibly
2: important. Agreed, agreed. I, I know I'm, I'm like, so I like sidetrack on pretty much everything, but so I so I invest in these companies, and one of the you know, the few things that we we coach our, our new leaders, a lot of these young people. Um, and we're all we're all still young, so I don't know why I'm talking to young people. But younger people, first-time founders, is you know if if you're gonna if you're gonna build a company, if you're gonna do anything very serious like this, then stop f***ing around on Netflix, <laughs> uh, like because uh, Netflix is cool and like Hulu and all those other you know YouTube and and all those cool social networks but you can give up those things for like a brief period of time especially if you walk through an accelerator program you can give that up for 12 weeks and think just think of all the hours that people spend on on Netflix and all those cool things and instead of building their dream um, and you say it that way and you know everyone nods their head They're like yeah that's obviously but then you, you you encounter so many people who are not happy or satisfied with their life or they're complaining and they say so what are you doing when you get home after work oh I I'm nodding off or doing whatever, just you know, messing around, like so. You have know, well, no one else to blame except yourself. Um, anyway,
0: yeah. is that what you um is that what you do at the the Iron Yard? Is that, uh, you sort of help coach with the accelerated programs? I know I've, I've seen some videos, <laughs> sort of like teaching people like, hey, you don't know anything. Here's how to code.
2: Yeah. So the Iron Yard is a half accelerator, half education. We accelerate companies, kind of um, Y Combinator. Um, uh, t- a TechStars model, twelve weeks, send give them some investment, lots of mentoring and coaching, and we help them raise their next round and really scale their company. In the same way, we do that with students. Um, we pe- give people an opportunity to do twelve weeks of a serious, intense boot camp training in software development, and uh, they're job ready after twelve weeks to, to go start kicking ass at being a software engineer. And uh, it's been amazing. I mean, just the life change that we can create within twelve weeks. It just it makes your heart skip a beat, um, especially for people who have really never properly worked in the technology world. Now their opportunities are almost endless, and they have, have pivoted their entire life. And I, I really feel like that is a life worth living when I can help other people achieve their dreams um, personally, professionally, financially. And uh, what a gift. So, so I love
1: what I get to do there. Yeah, it seems like everybody has a great idea, and jumping in on an accelerator program is a great way to go. I have, I've had a ton of friends do it, uh, really personal people, and they they absolutely loved it.
2: I mean, building a company is so hard, and I know we were talking pre pre um before we started here about even this podcast. I mean, there there is an opportunity for for you three guys even to maybe, maybe. I mean, who knows? I mean, the internet is so weird, but like take up this, this podcast, this small idea and do it full time. That is not a crazy idea. Um, but the thing that, you know, with any company is what we'll tell everyone else, you know, what I tell everyone is get as much help as you possibly can. It's so hard. So an accelerator can do that You give a little bit away the company. Great. I mean, not, not, not anything at all, but you get this wealth of experience and networking and mentorship and coaching and, It's so hard to create a company. You need all the help you can get. So um, that's that's why those environments work.
3: Yeah, and that's always one of the interesting things when hearing about these uh, programs is a lot of people perceive them as, oh, I have to give up a part of my company or a part of my idea, when really it's you're asking somebody else to invest time into coaching you. And your payment for their investment is that little bit of your company. So it is a like a very fair trade, and it can launch people into incredibly successful careers that lead them to not just do great work, but also to be happy doing what they're doing.
2: <laughs> Brian, I might take that soundclub right there, or this interview, or this podcast, and now I'm going to send that all to... All of our investors and all of our network be like. That's the attitude that everyone needs to have. It's, I mean, it's it's ten x, it's a hundred x what what we're asking um, for investment, or at least for the for that seed round. But but even personally, I know the first few companies I had, and this is first time founder mistakes. Um, Saying so, I raised my hand for all of them is I just felt like I couldn't give enough. I, c- I couldn't I couldn't keep enough for myself. In other words, I, w- I was super greedy. I encountered it all the time. Again, it's not. It's not someone's moral, you know, issue. It's not an ethical issue. It's just this immaturity of, no, no. I need to make to keep as much of the company as I possibly can for myself. I say, what, what the fuck does that really matter? Like, if this, this company is not going to be anything unless you get help. You get some nice co-founders, great get a board, get some investors who are, are all in for you. And you just look at the the companies that have really done well and the founders and and you and especially if they go public because then that all that information information becomes public you realize how little of the company they have. But who cares? They're valued at $10 billion. Like if you have 5% of that, you won't have to work for the rest of your life. And it's very rare for a founder who goes IPO or goes that big to even have a double-digit standing within kind of the founding equity. But again, who cares at that point? So anything shorter of an IPO, you're going to have even greater percentage of the company, and you're going to do great. Um, but again, you could tell that to a first time founder, kind of a young, young founder. And they're like, yeah, so what? I want to keep 90%. It's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you would just not be a dumbass, <laughs> but, um, anyway, so yeah, I love that attitude, Brian. And I'm going to take that clip and be like, Hey, this is exactly it.
3: Well, perfect. You can you can pass it around all you need to. And speaking of like pursuing passions and doing things that you think are really really incredible and important, um, what led you to create da- Desk? And could you tell us a little bit about what Desk
2: is? Desk is interesting um, because <clears throat> the original concept was actually about 10, 11 years old. I've been blogging every day for the last fourteen years, starting two thousand one. I am someone obsessed, and um, it was in two thousand two where i was taking a road trip down from jacksonville florida to naples my twin brother and i had just bought a car on ebay and that was really weird but we bought a car on ebay and we we're driving down um to naples and i was blogging in the in, in the passenger seat and you know we, this was before for my and and really robust wireless network so i was offline i was like man I wish I had an offline editor. I wish I had something that I could capture my thoughts and then publish it when I get back online. And I wrote this actually in an explicit blog post that I later published in in May of 2002. And um, ever since then, I've been thinking about, man, like these offline editors. And I encountered, and I was just hoping that someone would make a really good one. And there have been a few. It's it's not um, a well, it's not a big industry. It's not a big market. Um, because the entire world has been focused on the browser as being kind of the next the next world of operating system. We see that with Google hardware and Google software as kind of Chrome as the operating system. Uh, so native desktop publishing applications is like an archaic type of, type of thing. But, but I've been just obsessed with it. I just think that's cool. So 10 years of just me cooking on this idea and uh, finally... Attempted it for a number of different reasons <clears throat> in late 2013. and took 350 days to to write and build um, nights and weekends type stuff, and uh, launched it last year in August 30th of 2014. So it's not even like 80 days old or something. And uh, it's been really cool because it's it's gotten some really neat attention. And my intent was never to to even have that type of acclaim or or attention whatsoever. And but it's been really satisfying um, because blogging and writing and narrative and story, storytelling is, is as old as time really and people still want to do that and they want to do it for, through their uh, desktop publishing systems. So really, really fun.
3: Yeah, and there is a lot to be said about the distraction free approach and that's been one of my biggest challenges as I find myself more ingrained within the digital world is as somebody who was very passionate about writing and studied world literatures in uh, my undergrad, the fact that I'm so constantly connected has reduced my writing, which is incredibly sad and depressing. But then when you sit in these really distraction-free environments that also don't just push the like digital world away from you, but also push all of the controls and ability to edit and all of that off to the side so that you're just focusing on putting uh, words to a page or to a digital screen in this case, um, that really changes your ability to write and makes it so much easier for you to be creative and have output Um, So with that, like our topic this week, and one of the reasons we're so excited to have you on, is writing. Um, And so just so everyone who may be new to the show is aware, the way that we do this is uh, each week we take a major topic and we look at it from a a smaller perspective from each of us. So with me, with an interest in instructional design, I'm often looking at the way things affect our ability to learn or to uh, understand information and sometimes even to create um, Sean looks at it from the perspective of sort of a full stack designer. So he's concerned a lot with UI and UX and experiences of something. And Sam, as a software engineer, is concerned a lot with uh, creation and particularly like the use and development of something for the digital world. Um, so my topic uh, this week relating to writing is actually on flash fiction. Um, so I'm just going to hop into that. And uh, I, as I mentioned, was a student of world literatures and is an avid fan of reading, but also being incredibly passionate about writing. Um, I find myself constantly wanting to be able to set something down on a page, but in a busy world, not always having the time to do that. Um, so in spite of my love for novels and poetry and these uh, long, epic formats, flash fiction is what I consider my favorite form. And for those unfamiliar with it, it's a form of writing where you uh, have to communicate the story in an incredibly short number of words. Um, so there isn't an established informal rule but generally a thousand words is the cutoff for a flash fiction piece Um, and for some of us who write flash fiction we actually try to sometimes restrict that even lower so i frequently set as a rule for myself just a few hundred words um so for those that are new to flash fiction i sometimes just describe it simply as the haiku of prose um And having written and read flash fiction, I often find myself considering how limitations affect our ability to be creative. So as we add these restrictions to our creative endeavors, we find ourselves looking for and identifying new ways to overcome a challenge. Um, And a lot of people argue that those challenges make us flex these creative muscles. And I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. So how do you feel limitations affect our
2: creativity? I'm actually very interested in, in hearing all of your thoughts I think it kind of principally, excuse me, boundaries or limitations really, they, they kick up creativity a serious notch um, because chaotic creation is not exactly, I, I think those things are asymmetrical. I think it, it, without, without boundaries, it's, it's just chaos. And some would argue, you know, even semantically, oh, well, chaos is kind of a form of art. Well, not really, because all art is using utensils and tools, and there's an order and a system. Um, even if the creation itself doesn't appear like there is a natural or, um, or systematic approach, it's still, there's a system to it of the way that we use our hands, our physiological approach, our mind, and then the utensils that we actually use to create them. And so that, that there's order there. Um, and that's why I think things like Twitter really take off because, in many ways, at least in the beginning, the 140 characters, that is a creative boundary marker. That is a limitation. And people just, they flock to it, um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and they like that. The problem is, is that limitations and boundaries, especially for creative people, they need to keep changing. And that's where we get things like spam in Twitter or, you know, marketers who kind of take over the world and now Twitter is no longer cool um, or even effective, excuse me. And so... I, as an artist and creative myself, I'm constantly trying to evolve the boundaries, not just my point of execution and the things that I create, but I'm always trying to change my entire environment, Um, otherwise I get stale. Um, And while we're on the topic of Twitter, I quit Twitter actually, officially, last week, um, just because it it was a new time for me to to really create a new boundary for, for how I interface with the world. And I've a lot of people have emailed me and said you're insane because why? <laughs> why would you give up 180,000 followers on Twitter? And I'm like, well, um, because. <laughs> I mean, I can do whatever, because I can do whatever. I can do whatever I want. Um, but the art or being creative or being productive um, that is more important to me than uh, you know 100 180,000 people following me on Twitter. So I, I think oh man I, could, I couldn't preach in a little, hard enough on just how limitations just make you just really up the, the creative, creative notion scale. So totally for it. But the key is just continuing to evolve and, and iterate on what those might be.
3: Yeah. And I know on a recent podcast, uh, the pro guide that you were on, you had mentioned that some of the people who first embrace a technology or in this form, we could say embrace a like limitation are often the first ones to leave. Um, and that is really interesting to see. And it's sometimes that those people that are the first to, to embrace are the ones who are also looking for new ways to innovate or new challenges to tackle. And so that's that might be why they are the first ones to leave. Um, so it is pretty true that sometimes these creative limitations, you have to step outside of them, which is why I love after writing flash fiction non-stop for a while, just looking then back to a novel or a longer piece and seeing how that challenge I can look at from a very new perspective and have a whole new set of tools that I'm prepared to use when looking at it.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, so Sam, do you have any thoughts on uh, how limitations affect your creativity, especially from the perspective of a software engineer? You may be looking at limitations such as functioning from only one device or having to deal with the uh, creative challenge of working on multiple platforms so What are your thoughts on this limitation?
1: It's great having John here because I feel like him and I would agree on a lot of things when it comes (laughs) Uh, to this. Uh, You're
2: you're like you're (laughs) like a lonely island on on this tribe here, right? Because you're the only software guy, like our properly software guy. You're a brave man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 been pretty fun. So yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes as long as we can keep this up. Uh, but really, uh, like boundaries on anything, I I just as a person, I've always been, I see a boundary and I kind of am very stubborn and try and get past that boundary or cross that boundary as much as I can uh, and, and just like kind of test the waters outside of these boundaries to kind of see what happens. Uh, I, I love to just toss a wrench into something and kind of see what comes from it. But uh, I mean, as an engineer, you see boundaries and you want to push beyond these boundaries. Uh, a lot of people do it because they want to be remembered. They want to be known for the person who pushed beyond that. But I'd rather just do it to kind of push everybody forward. If we're always restricted by these boundaries, then uh, there's not going to be much innovation or much hope for the future. We kind of have to get past the boundaries that we and other people have set for ourselves and go from there. There was actually, (laughs) kind of funny, the parallel, what is it? The parallel parking contest a few weeks ago. uh, What? They set the world record. I saw
2: that video. That was amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. He did it like first yeah, try it or something.
1: <laughs> it, it was ridiculous, but just a few days ago, somebody beat that world record uh, and they cut it almost in half. What?
0: <laughs> so so well, there is a, a contest for parallel parking. Is that what the video
2: yeah. is about? Sean, why does that even surprise you,
0: man? This is, the, I, this is like the internet. I'm, I just want to make sure I heard the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> and where is it at? But, like if you had to go and like become a spectator for this.
1: Uh, it was, I don't know exactly where it was. They were driving Mini Coopers and it was on the American side uh, driving or like the steering wheel oh, was on oh, the American on the right side, side. So I, I don't know exactly where. They
2: made a big deal of it. It was like you know either like Red Bull or GoPro or something sponsored it or something. I think
1: yeah red bull Red Bull sponsored one of them, i mean red bull they they're the coolest marketing company in the world. They sponsor <laughs> all these really weird, cool things.
2: You know, Sam, first of all, I gotta give you props because your avatar on Twitter is like this really crazy hat. But even your even your most recent tweet, man, having shit to do all the time kind of sucks sometimes. I think that's I think it's I think it's really relevant to boundaries because it having you know stuff to do all the time that's boundaryless and that sucks, you know, and you need boundaries in your even in your day to to really make sense of it all so how how relevant
3: yeah, earlier today uh I actually saw that tweet and favored it because I know Sam and I have both been hectically running around and sometimes we just need to know when to turn the switch off and say no to something. Um, and set not just boundaries in our creative endeavors, but also just in our lives so that we can focus on the things that we are interested in terms of our creativity. But Sean, what were your thoughts on this sort of topic in the lim- setting of limitations? I have none. None? <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: Um, I was actually going to go into the, the whole protecting your own time aspect. Like If, if you uh, don't have a focus on your life, <laughs> not just in writing, but in, if you don't have you protecting the time that you have here on the earth... Just like, I, like in the beginning, John, you were saying, like, there is only so much time you have left. You're only young for so long. And I know last year I had I don't know, three or four people, I think, <laughs> I lost count. Uh, people just die that were really close to me. And that sort of hit home really hard. Um, Just like, I have no idea how long I'm going to be here. And I want to focus on the right things to work on and experiment productively, not have just like a a blank canvas, which if you ever open like Illustrator, (laughs) you're you're just like, here's an artboard that's huge and unlimited. But without like that kind of restraint and having like dimensions to what you're going to produce, then it's sometimes like overwhelming and you don't get your best results out of it.
2: So. I, th- I think Sean though you you hit on like the ultimate boundaries life and death which we don't think about but those are the ultimate boundary markers you you are born and then you die and but everything in between we don't we don't oftentimes think like okay I, I there are some boundaries here and I have to use what I've got to, to do really important work so yeah like my I'm my dad works in hospice, um, he's a chaplain in hospice. So he he every day his job is to help people die with dignity and uh, to counsel the families of, of those who, who have passed. And so that, that's his, that's all his work is, is identifying the boundaries and being at the very end of one and, and really trying to figure out or at least counsel people through that process. So absolutely, man, that's you've really touched on pretty much the big one.
0: And then it, uh, it, I was just trying to think about like, how you said like the – like the life and death is like the limitations. And I was just trying, as soon as you said that, for some reason, um, I just thought of like a, a graph, <laughs> like a, the X, Y coordinates, like in the beginning, that, like that's uh, the X level. The X axis is more like that's the timeline you have. You don't know how far it goes. Um, and it's up to you, like if you go um, with the Y axis, like how far up and down you sort of go. And yeah. that's just the first visualization that I sort of had in my mind <laughs> to think about like maximizing that, maximizing the area under the curve.
2: <laughs> yes this is this has gotten incredibly morbid
0: oh yeah
3: <laughs> that's all right we, we've even gone so far as to bring up suicide in a previous show so it happens we're okay with the the darker conversation from time to time
2: all of the above
3: uh, yep <laughs> so uh that- with you guys speaking of mortality and those sorts of things, that also made me think. To one of the reasons that I appreciate these restrictions so much is not so much that they just make us more creative, but they also make us more proficient with the tools that we have at our disposal. Um, so again, if we look back to writing and flash fiction, by reducing the amount of words that we can use, we're left with really pinpointing the key components of our narrative structure. And by reducing those number of words, we are stuck with just the bones of a story, and if we spend that time and get really proficient with identifying what our narrative structure is, what our turning points will be, who our characters are and how they interact with each other, then when we do look at some longer piece or even something outside of writing we are more prepared to use our tools more proficiently which can mean that we actually save time in the long run that we aren't spending so much time focusing on just dumping stuff onto a page and then editing and then dumping more onto a page and then editing again but instead we're putting down just the absolute essentials And that proficiency means that we can accomplish more within the really short lifespans that we do have. So proficiency, to me, has always been one of the biggest uh, advantages of these creative limitations. But Sam, I'm going to have us jump over into your topic, which is uh, fluency in code. So do you want to go ahead and start discussing that with us? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about fluency in code.
1: Last year, actually almost exactly a year ago, uh, New Mexico uh, proposed that uh, computer programming should be count toward the state's foreign language requirement in public schools. And uh, a few other states jumped on board with this, and a lot of the education community kind of jumped back and said, absolutely not. This isn't something that should be a foreign language. It's more of a skill to have, and they still need to learn foreign languages. but uh, it's kind of funny because in, in 2004, Stanford, uh, they actually published a document that was named Programming as a Second Language. And it wasn't until 10 years later that this actually became a thing uh, in an actual like, political issue. So really, like, what do you guys think about pr- a programming language being considered a foreign language? Is it, is it yay or nay? Or is this not something that we, we should even worry about? Um, Well, I'm going to
3: jump into it. Since I would mentioned world literatures as an undergrad, my focus within that was actually translation studies. Um, And a lot of people consider that just translating one language to another language. Um, I looked at it a lot from translating one medium to another, so book to film or uh, song to short story and those sorts of things. And watching and even talking just with you, Sam, about the applications that you're working on and the programs that you have uh, going at your work, I can see you constantly having to translate something, so here is a idea that was expressed verbally to you. How do you, one, put that down as a, a clear concept on page, and then how do you translate that concept into the code that results in the app that you're developing? So there's clearly a process of translation that's taking place, and knowing that developers can sit down and look at lines of code, which to many of us are going to look like gobbledygook, And knowing that that can actually become a, whether it be visual or auditory or whatever it may be, but can become something that people experience and interact with, and they can read through that and know where flaws are and where there's issues with syntax and all of these various things. It clearly seems to be a language to me, and it carries all of these other components, such as being translatable. Um, So for me, I definitely view it as a foreign language. But Sean, what are your uh, thoughts on this?
0: I guess it'd be like language uh, like the purpose of language is to communicate like thoughts and ideas um to one another i, I don't think there's a language there probably is there's probably a guy invented a language that only he or she <laughs> can read write and produce which isn't really beneficial it's more of just a a way to just if uh, i don't know the word it's something <laughs> <laughs> um, futile attempt for, uh, the word will come to me later but with programming it, it, you are trying to communicate something it might not be to another person per se it, it's just you are trying to communicate your thoughts uh, to this computer that knows ones and zeros and in between that are there can be like a compiler and then the machine code like language and code and just trying to go from what we're trying to think of and the systems involved into something that another thing can understand so again I guess it, it could be considered a, a foreign language I, it definitely is a foreign language um but i don't know if it would be classified as like a classic interpretation of what a foreign language would be um compared to like learning spanish german russian so that is my thought i, I also know like um schools have been like every year there's like a, the hour of code so you guys know about that i heard about that
2: yeah
1: yep
0: i, I led it at uh, i led so it at my uh kids elementary school I was,
2: I, I was the the leader on that one last year So, yes. So, uh,
0: because I know about it, you have an hour and then you just sort of learn like basics of programming, but what did you like teach them? So
2: there there are a number of things, I mean, depending on the age, but what I, I oversaw like first graders And so what we were more interested in was the mechanics of thinking um, like a computer to really get them to to begin kind of taking an everyday type of um, experience and relating that to computer kind of computer processes. So moving a cup 10 spaces forward from where you are, that's a sequence. And then trying to move right and left and right and left, and we're just we're just trying to create a, a relationship between moving that cup, you know, ten spaces forward, two right, one back, and that's how computers think is this very sequential order. At least in very generalized terms, and the, you can make it very fun, and so they—they they don't even really know that they're lear, learning basic sequencing, which is uh, fundamental to programming. So that was awesome, I and mean, that—that hour went real fast, and then kind of scales. And there's some online stuff for older stu- um, you know, students to to engage with software programming for the first time, and. I think the, in principle, the idea is great. Um, the problem I think in, is that most people don't know to, what to do after the hour of code. And so it's like a one time yeah. thing. And everyone's like, kind of left, you know, with their arms raised and like, so what now? And I think that's unfortunate. There's like no post one hour code kind of curriculum or, or culture that's been developed. And, and, uh, I think that needs to be remedied, but anyway, it's way off topic. Uh, so I'm going to answer this question because um, I've thought about it a lot. If I'm to stay true to the question of it as a second language, I think I could argue that it's not um, like, because it, it would probably be more of a dialect uh, if I'm thinking like properly in terms of language and linguistics, because mm-hmm. it's I'm still using English to write software um, code, not um, you know it's Japanese, which would I guess historically be classified as a second different, um, semantically grammatically different language. But beyond that, and I and I don't that argument right there, I don't think anyone really gives a shit. But I think the more important question is: Should everyone? Learn to code. Now that's kind of like at the the foray, the front of all of these things about how to code. And my wife and I've had tons of conversations. And I think what where people get tripped up is in, in terms of this argument is is they have to you have to be able to relate it to other professions. Um, how I see software, especially today's connected, technology driven, ubiquitous world that we live in, is that software is, should really be treated more as a liberal art, which is really a very, very Jobsian approach, Steve Jobs' approach to, to, to classic uh, schooling, is that everyone should learn. Now, to the extent of which a student should learn, the breadth and depth, that's not really up... Um, that, that, that's different. That's a different question entirely. So well, I think a better way of thinking about it is everyone should be literate in software, not everyone needs to be fluent. I think that's the key distinction. Just as I, I, I think everyone should be literate in basic reading, writing, arithmetic. Not everyone needs to be fluent or or show vast expertise. And my wife is actually an English major, an English literature major from from UGA. And she goes deep into the writing, historical uh, understanding of, 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 you know, of, of English and literature. and Like, I don't give a about that but i can i can but i can read the books that she studies so i'm literate in those things but i don't need to be fluent i don't need to be an expert and so in the same way i think everyone should be able to interface with software and be able to tell what maybe even a basic object is or at least follow the sequence in but do they need to be super fluent and then become a software programmer like absolutely not um so that's where we've landed, at least personally and then kind of as a family. And so I hope I'm, we're now homeschooling our oldest. And so we're having her interface with software. If she wants to be like go super deep with software like her dad, that would be awesome and would be amazing. My heart would just be so bursting with joy. But if she doesn't want to and, and she's literate, man, that's a win too. So, anyway, that's my answer to that.
0: I have a because when you brought up how like a like pretty much every programming language is in using the English alphabet um, and how if we look outside like just the US if you were to go to Russia for example um, them learning how to code um, just even like a little bit more than advanced of basic stuff they would l- eventually learn some <laughs> very I wouldn't even say they couldn't put, really put together a sentence uh, in English but they are learning uh, the English language in a very different Different. They're coming at it from a different approach. I don't know if you guys know of anything that, like, uh, how that affects other countries and learning how to code. Just because there, if uh, there is a language barrier.
2: Yeah. I can tell you from experience. Yeah. I've, I've worked with a bunch of software developers in my previous companies. One, I, when I worked at Dell in the enterprise, I managed a team from Bangalore, India, and they spoke a native dialect to, to that country, and they're fluent, obviously, in that dialect. But we wrote software all in English. And I've worked with a, a team out of um, Czechoslovakia, and they have a—what I'm not even sure what that language mm-hmm. is. It's you know, it's like Cyrillic, you know, in terms of written. Or something, something totally. You know, I, I can't read any of it. But they were, we were all programming in English. So I mean, it, it, what? And again, because I don't know from that perspective, but
0: yeah, because I was just trying to think of like in the beginning, like it, how does that all work out? Because if they end up at the same level at the the part where they're working with other companies in different countries, cool. But what, what just that starting point? I don't know how more or less difficult it is.
2: Yeah, it's. It, I don't think it's about being able to. Under, I think it's functional. It's functional, very object, pr- or, or like I'm going to be getting in trouble by saying that because that's an entire field. But <laughs> it's, they're like you know, they're, 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 the the functions, the calls, the semantics are objects, and they're they're they it's a very functional, pragmatic. Like, this was what this does. Um, I don't, know, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's like moving cups, like for the kids. The cup goes here, and cup goes there. Uh, so yeah, I, but. It's weird how you know English is is a very dominant is is the is the dominant uh, language of the internet um, in a lot of ways. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, and I think that does tie back to your view on it as being a dialect, and perhaps these people who. their primary language is something that's not English, but as they're learning code, if they are learning that as a dialect of English, where they're learning syntax in a a different way than what you would if you were learning standard American English, that maybe that is how they are perceiving this as they're learning the language, but that would be incredibly interesting research. And for me, interested in adult learning theory and the way that uh, we learn and, and grow to develop things and ideas in our minds Sean's question is something that now I'm going to spend way too much time probably
2: pondering and end up looking into a whole bunch of research on. Brian, are you the guy that's like, you rabbit trail on Wikipedia? <laughs> are, you, are you the guy that like you get jumped into one and then two hours later, you're like, oh my God, I've got a hundred tabs open. I've clicked every link on Wikipedia. Are you that guy?
3: Yeah. And I've probably ordered like 20 of the books <laughs> that are referenced throughout Wikipedia for me to read that week. So That's so funny.
1: Yeah. Seven clicks to Jesus. Is that, you play (laughs) that game a lot? (laughs) Yeah, that
3: is, uh, that's how I try to like get out of the, the Wikipedia hole that I've dug myself into is, uh, start playing seven clicks to Jesus, which if anyone's not familiar with it is where you strategically click links on the Wikipedia article until you land on the page for Jesus, um, which you can also do for like Kevin Bacon as well with the (laughs) six degrees, (laughs)
2: I've never heard of that, but that is hilarious, and I'm gonna go try it after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can I can start anywhere. Is that right? I can just Google Google, yeah,
0: or anything. Even, uh, yeah. even better, if you go to Wikipedia and press like random page. That way, you have like no influence on where you start.
2: Oh my god, I am gonna try that. That is that is so funny. it's
0: frighteningly easy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So with all of that, since I think we've hit on Sam's topic, Sean, do we want to jump into your topic of yes, the evolution yes, of yes. writing?
0: Evolution of writing. This is just more thinking about like um, using like Desk, the app, and how listening to your podcast on uh, the Pro Blogger Pro Form Pro Pro Guide. Sorry, <laughs> I cannot read my notes. And how you were talking about how you you made this writing tool that you wanted yourself, um, but also thinking about like in the future you you'd be working on this for like five ten years and hopefully it would outlive you and i know right now as it is it's a it's, you go in there it's a blank cabins uh little is blinking at you it's like hey put some words on me i like you
2: yeah <laughs> it's super spartan right
0: yeah. So right now, it, you're just uh, writing words and you can put pictures in there and embed videos depending on the platform that you want to publish to. Um, and how you were talking about, or have in some, instances, uh, some places, um, how you've been blogging just for like for 14 years and you're uploading static HTML pages. And now we've come so far, we have like content management systems and lots of doodads. So just thinking about like five, 10 years out, which is a little bit hard, just uh, the future of how we write. And I just watched uh, this uh, talk by Brett Victor, if uh, you guys know about him. If not, I'll I'll send you guys the link. Um, It was called The Humane Representation of Thought, which is, it sounds like a very pretentious, 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 I can't say that word right, Uh, pretentious, pretentious, yes, pretentious (laughs) title, Um, but it's just uh, how humans have evolved to get thoughts out of our minds using symbols uh, such as letters numbers uh, letters and then with numbers there was like roman numerals but then that uh, we use like arabic uh, numerals which has helped us to develop like more complex forms of mathematics because if you ever try and subtract <laughs> roman numerals it's it's not like the easiest thing and then he just goes on and saying like right now we're sort of stuck the tools that we have we have like a keyboard and mouse and touch screens uh, which allow for only certain kind of inputs which which then produce only certain kind of outputs. So just thinking about the future, like uh, not being limited by text, but also like uh, like uh, dynamic models. That so first of all, you've like- you've
2: totally you've like totally slain Brian because. The Vimeo video of this, I found at the humane representation of thought, the, uh, the, the kind of expanded notes section, Brian, has about 10,000 <laughs> links on it. Um, so good luck. <laughs> You'll, you won't be doing anything else for the rest of the week. Um, <laughs> That looks like it's a 56-minute video. It looks wildly interesting, so I I think I'll I'll definitely take a look at that as well.
0: Yeah, bookmark that.
2: But to answer your um, question, uh, I don't think writing will change much at all um, because I don't think it has changed, and I don't think it will change, um, and I don't think it necessarily should change. Writing is an art form. and so in that way it is classic um, and, and in its truest form, I don't think it can really be adulterated. There's a very clear tie between using our natural utensils, which are our our. our, our eyeballs and our hands and our fingers, our digits, and connecting them with some physical um, non-animate utensil or object or tool, a pen, a quill, um, a pencil, and then some other object, which would be kind of the writing surface. And desk, in many ways, is as clear-cut and as spartan as you possibly can, as close in terms of proximity to that Original form as you possibly can in terms of the digital space. I don't know of any other way that you could possibly get any closer. And I really wanted to respect that because writing, as we all know, is really fucking hard to begin with. So adding any distraction on top of that is really like, you know, suicidal. Um, and even even though I've been writing for fourteen years, it's still hard. I, I tell people all the time; they think it's just some magical thing. I struggle with writing every single day. I think, as an artist, as as all of us are in software engineering, as in design. I mean, it's 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 a painful process, and I think art is a source of, a, a, in a way, um, a painful thing. I think I think it should be. Um, So I don't think my app is going to change much. What's so funny and what's so interesting is someone sent me this. I'm going to send you guys a link of um, something that Leonardo da Vinci created many, 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 many years ago is he created this, essentially an early form of the Cornell method of note-taking, a note-taking area, a column, and some summary information. And this blew my mind um, because when you actually look at the shortcut and the, the content area and how Da Vinci created his note-taking device, that's exactly how I created Desk in terms of the actual UI. Um, and I, I, I would love to have taken credit for being Da Vinci-like, but I, I can't. I didn't. I just I came up with a design on a paper napkin sketch, and so my mind was blown because all things new are just somewhat of an iteration of something something old, and so I'm completely unoriginal. And in that way, I really it really was validating to me um, that I, I didn't come up with something new. That I, I have just been repeating a kind of a, a, an, an approach to writing. To capturing ideas that um, that that works, that is effective, and who cares if it was Da Vinci or just Joe Schmoe? But it just works, and so I was really humbled by that, and I thought that was that was really cool. So um, as all you know, as innovative or disruptive or quote unquote, you know, you know, whatever that people are, I, I really there are very few things that truly, by definition, can be ever innovative, um, and writing will never be, or the art form rather. Um, So that's a long way of saying that, answering your question, but um, I love that question. It's a great question.
3: I was going to say with all of that, it makes me think to how there's this whole concept of feature creep in terms of app development where since the user base is constantly asking for and demanding something new happens, developers often just look for some crazy new thing to add in for the sake of appeasing them. But sometimes there is a beauty in just saying, no, like this is perfect as it is. The only things I have to do are fix like minor bugs that might come up and cause a crash. But the actual like experience or the purpose of this app is fully realized in its form and we don't need to add more to it. And in some ways you can see that with the way writing has evolved. Um, so we went from writing on paper to now typing onto a keyboard and in some ways even just typing directly onto a screen with devices like an iPad. Um, but even Apple, who was once quoted by Steve Jobs as saying that uh, if you have a stylus, you're, you're doing it wrong. But now there are patents from them that are now being coming up to the, the uh, surface where we can see that they're looking into stylus development and creating uh, unique ways in which we can use the stylus. And that almost makes me think, are we actually evolving back towards just writing with pen to paper, just doing it with a uh, digital uh, template instead of a physical book or a journal that we're writing in? So that's sort of um, my my perspective on this and along the lines of what John was saying, where the actual art and the approach isn't changing so much. Um, Really, the only things that I see changing are how we put our ideas down into words and even that seems to be reverting back to its original form um, just with means that are perhaps more efficient for storing and uh, sharing this information. So um, Sam, what were your uh, thoughts on this?
1: So, Sean and I, we actually went to a small conference last night, uh, and we learned some stuff, uh, fun stuff, met some cool people. But one of the things that uh, was brought up during this conference was uh, Socrates. And Socrates, when writing became a thing, he, he didn't believe in it, and so he actually never wrote anything down. He had people do that for him. And mind you, Socrates is the founder of Western philosophy, so there's kind of a lot written about him, but none of it was... ever written by him. So he saw writing technology as something that wasn't appropriate because everything should be thought of in your head, as a philosopher would. Everything's just in your head uh, and you shouldn't have to write it down. You can just speak it to people. Otherwise, you're going to forget it. But uh, with that, there's actually uh, something that people listening don't see is the chat going on between all of us. John just sent a link to a really cool piece of technology called the the Hemingway. (laughs) <laughs> which is a distraction-free digital typewriter and that could possibly be what writing will look like in the future. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you're going to share that with your with your, uh, your your subscribers, uh, it is a very funny and yet interesting um, Kickstarter project and it is it is mobile. You can actually carry it just like a briefcase and I think that is as silly as all get out, but I think there's something honorable in the attempt. <laughs> Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because Kickstarter projects are weird uh, but yeah I, I, here, here's kind of a, a final thought that I have been um, meditating on for, for, for quite some time and, 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 and all three of you I think have experienced this, maybe not put into words um, but really one of my favorite artists of all time is, is a guy named Hugh McCloyd. he's still with us he's a, he's a cartoonist and um he got his he really became famous um by and many of us have seen his work, but he became famous um by using a black pen on you know, on the back of business cards. And um he would just take a he would just draw designs and kind of these cartoons on the back of, of, of used business cards. And uh, he doesn't need anything more than that a, a small canvas, a business-size size card uh, canvas, and a black pen. And he has a, an entire career on this. But he came up with this idea that the more talented someone is, the less they need props. And I sat on that. The first time I, I heard that was four, five, six years ago. And I've sat on that for a long time. And I realized that um, as I grew as a software professional, Um, As I grew in my expertise and command of the software language and and the protocols and and, and things like that, the less dependent I became on tools and platforms and uh, essentially shortcuts, and the more I relished, the more I desired simple tools basic text editors, like Sublime Text, um, without all the libraries hidden inside or all the shortcuts. Um, And then I began to encounter people who were just at the top of their craft, the top of their game, in whatever field it might be, and how simple their tool sets were. You know, a piece of paper and a pen. Um, uh, And, you know, even graphic artists who were like, you know, I, I don't really need all this advanced stuff. I just, I still use this basic form. Even for myself, I, I the, uh, the only f- um, Photoshop I have is Photoshop CS3, um, which for some of you guys, some of you guys know, um, that says that's older than my eight-year-old daughter. And it just like, and so you know, and so Hugh McCloy kind of built this theory that just the more the more talented someone is, the less props they need. And then you see all these hacks. You see all these people who. Um, They have thousands of productivity tools and thousands of applications that they're using. And then you you just drill down into their expertise or their art and their craft and you see that they're shit. And that they they have hidden themselves behind all these layers of technology and systems and productivity tools. And um, man, it's been really overwhelming for me to think about how quickly we can almost shortcut our own growth as an artist um, in, in any field, by adding layers of tools and utensils and technology um, to, to almost compensate for um, the lack of skill that we were, that we're trying to acquire, and uh, you know Van- Hugh McLeod uses like Abraham Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Gettysburg Address on ordinary stationery. Um, James Joyce um, wrote all all their work on a simple pencil and notebook. Van Gogh never used more than six colors of his palette. Like it's just these these exceptional artists who had just simple tool kit. And um, anyway, just anyway, so so I think that of that all the way back to writing. Like, what more do you need than a pencil and a piece of paper? Um, I think some of the the best work starts right there.
3: And I would say that we can almost see that perspective within your application, um, because it is just getting down to the bare bones of what you need and how do you get your job done and not spend time with all of the frou-frou of... uh, constantly like changing the look and the appearance or focusing too much on editing, there is this beautiful spot where it just, you're writing and then you can click that preview and see what you've produced and then just immediately share that. And that's something that I think is beautiful about your application. And I think we can see that that concept or idea of getting back down to the simple form and not overdoing it. So with that, does anyone else have any sort of final thoughts for us? I know we'll be including a lot of the things that we've talked about, such as Hugh McCloyd into our uh, show notes for everyone to see, uh, which his name, as we've just learned in our show chat, uh, is not at all <laughs> what we would have expected the spelling to be. But do you guys have any final thoughts for us before we close out the show?
2: I have a final thought that yes. might not be the final, final thought, but that I like this group <laughs> and the three of you, and I hope you guys continue to do this because I think it's a very interesting interesting mix of personality. So I just want to encourage you guys to to keep at it. I think this is really cool. Well, thank you. That means a lot for us
3: to hear, I'm sure. At least I'm speaking for myself here, but I assume that's true for uh, you, Sean, and Sam.
1: Yeah, I think Brian's <laughs> speaking for all of us. It's, it's an honor to have you on our show. So uh, I'm speaking for Sean now. So hopefully he is the yeah, same as both I'm of gonna, us. And I'm going <laughs>
0: to speak for John and say that... <laughs> that it wasn't an uncomfortable amount of time spent with uh three other dudes uh virtually over skype
2: (laughs) wow yeah it's been it's been over an hour this is this is a little uncomfortable now
3: (laughs) (laughs) i know i don't even uh talk to significant others on the phone for this long so this is a a special moment i think that's happening but John where is it just so that our audience can uh, find your work and find what you're up to since I know you're you've left the uh, Twitterverse as they call it um, where is it that everyone can keep track of the great things that you're doing
2: Yeah and my blog is is the best it's johnjohn.do so john.do or john.do is where I'll, I kind of do all my stuff so
3: which is probably the most
2: clever URL I've seen in a while It's kind of yeah I like the idea of being a John Doe, which by any stretch of the imagination, I am not. So it's kind of like a little play on internet world. And I don't know, I was was trying to be funny, but my wife was like, that is the dumbest name ever. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's, everyone's going to call it John.Doe. And guess what? Most people say that. I'm like, oh no, she was right. Yeah,
3: I was actually (laughs) just thinking that even john.do communicates in your perspective where you've talked about you have a limited lifetime. You just need to get out and do things. So it does sort of work on two levels where it's literally saying John Do. I
2: fell back on that, but I did not originally think of that. So I'm admitting to everyone I wasn't that smart. (laughs) I thought it was clever. But then I was like, dang it, everyone's calling it. So you go to john.do, I'm like, ooh, uh, yes, because you should do things.
3: Um. (laughs) all right so so with John.do as your uh a best way to get there we'll make sure that we also include that in our show notes so that everyone can go see what you're doing and we'll also have a uh, link to where everyone can get into the mac app store and download your wonderful application but with that i think we uh we have our show all wrapped up so thank you again so much for uh, joining us thanks so much guys and that completes this amazing ninth episode of All of the Above. To learn more about what we discussed and to find links to John's great work, take a look at our show notes at alloftheabove.audio slash episodes slash 009. I would also like to mention that John has a great community for those that want to improve their writing, which can be found at talk.desk.pm. He also offers an amazing 10 day workshop to help you improve your writing and your blog. It's definitely worth checking out because it's entirely free. As always, we would also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch, you can find all of our contact information at alloftheabove.audio/contact. But the simplest way to reach us is through Twitter, where we can be found at Above Podcast. Finally, thank you all for listening. It means so much to us, and it is wonderful getting to hear from those of you tuning in. If you haven't already, head over to iTunes to subscribe so that each new episode is delivered directly to you as soon as it's released. And if you're enjoying the show, the best thing you can do to help out is rate the show on iTunes. It's a simple act that makes a world of difference for us. We will see you all again next week. In the meantime, go out and start pursuing your dreams.